Hey, how you doing? This is Steve, and you're listening to Rock's Not Dead, a place where we talk about old rock, new rock, and everything in between. We'll dive into the bands, the songs, the musicians, and we'll talk about some interesting things you might not have known about your favorite artists. At the end of every episode, we're going to talk about some new music that you really should be checking out. Today we're going to talk about a man who many people consider to be one of the best guitar players who ever lived. He came from humble beginnings, and he rose to be a member of one of the biggest rock bands ever. His unique, innovative style has inspired countless number of guitar players, young and old, to learn how to play guitar. And he's also been the most emulated guitar player of any of them. Today we're going to talk about the one and only legendary Eddie Van Halen. So who was Eddie Van Halen? Well, he was born Eddie Ludwig Van Halen in Nijmegen, Netherlands, January 26th, 1955. He has one older brother, Alex Arthur Van Halen, and his dad, Jan Van Halen, was an accomplished jazz musician who played saxophone, clarinet, and piano. And his mom, Eugenia Van Halen, was from Indonesia. They were a biracial family in the Netherlands in the 1950s, and they were discriminated against horribly. So much so that their mother thought the best thing for them to do would be to move to the United States. So what she did, she packed them all up, got them on a boat in 1962. They sailed across the ocean, landed in New York City. Then they started the trek across the continental U.S., and they finally landed in Pasadena, California, where they made their home. They came to the U.S., and they had about 50 bucks and a piano. So they're in a strange land. It's a foreign land and they don't know anybody. It was a pretty scary time for him. To make ends meet, his mother got a job as a maid, and his father got a job as a janitor, as well as continuing to be a professional musician. When they landed in the U.S., Eddie couldn't speak a, a word of English, and because of that, they were considered minorities because they couldn't speak English. And this is before the Civil Rights Movement, so the schools were still segregated, and they were treated as minorities. So... Most of Eddie's friends were black. In fact, all his friends were black, he said, uh, when he was in school. Because the white kids picked on him. They would bully him. They'd take his lunch money. They'd, they'd throw him down. They'd make him mute sand. It was awful. And the people that defended him were the black kids. And he made a lot of good friends that way. While the discrimination was a lot better in the U.S. than it was in the Netherlands, it was still pretty hard. And Eddie said he looked back on it as his time as an immigrant, and he was grateful for it because everything they had to go through, it made him stronger and to where they got to. He said if that wasn't an example of the American dream, then he didn't know what was. Side note, Indonesian social media users often refer to the Van Halen brothers with a lot of pride and praise because they think that their accomplishments are, are a, a strong testament for their community, and they're very proud of them. Eddie's parents wanted both him and Alex to be classic pianists, so they started taking lessons. Eddie was about six years old, and they would have to go across town to a Russian piano instructor. Eddie didn't like going because it was so far, but he did it. Now, Eddie never learned how to read sheet music. So what he would do is he'd watch the recitals and he would see someone playing Bach or, or Mozart and he would emulate what they do. So when he would play it, he was just winging it. From 1964 to 67, he won first place in the annual 
piano competitions at Long Beach College. One of the judges told them that he really enjoyed his interpretation of the song you played. Eddie didn't understand that because he thought he was playing it right. So during this time, Eddie got proficient at learning music by ear. And while his parents wanted them to be classical musicians, they discovered rock and roll. They loved the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five, and that's what they decided they wanted to do. They didn't want to play piano. Eddie got his first drum set and started playing. Yep, Eddie started on drums. Alex started on the guitar. Well, it wasn't long before Alex started playing his drums and he played a perfect rendition of Wipeout by the Safaris. And Eddie said, I don't want to do that. He picked up his guitar and started playing around with it. That's how Van Halen was formed right there because Alex picked up the drums Eddie picked up the guitar. Eddie's first guitar was a Tesco Del Rey purchased from Sears and Roebuck. Eddie said that Alex kept playing his drums and he just kept getting better and better and better. So all he would do is just play the, the guitar and he just didn't mess with the drums anymore. Now, Eddie practiced constantly. He said that he would sit on the edge of the bed with a six pack of Schlitz malt liquor and his brother, Alex, would go out at 7 o'clock at night, and he'd be sitting there on the bed practicing. Alex would come back at 3 o'clock in the morning, and Eddie would be in the same spot doing exactly the same thing. That's all he ever did was play guitar. The first band they formed was called the Broken Combs with three boys from school. They were in elementary school. They were fourth grade, about that, about that age. They played at school during lunchtime, and Eddie said after that performance, that's when he decided he wanted to be a professional musician. Eddie said that Eric Clapton was his main influence, and he had learned almost every solo from his cream years, note for note. And he was known for that. He kind of built up a reputation locally for being able to do that. But he said that he felt he was a little more like Jimmy Page style-wise because they both share a kind of a reckless abandon. Now, the two brothers formed a band called Genesis in 1972, but once they found out there was an actual band called Genesis from England, they changed the name to Mammoth. Eddie was the guitar player and the lead singer, and he hated singing. He didn't like his voice, but they didn't have anyone else to do it. They met David Lee Roth, and Eddie didn't like his voice either, but... Unlike the Van Halen brothers, David Lee Roth came from money. He had money. He had his own sound system. And apparently that sound system was enough that Eddie said, okay, you can be our lead singer. He was part of the band. Now, right off the bat, David Lee Roth tried to change stuff. He wanted to change things, the direction of the band, all the songs they were doing and everything. So there was some tension between him and Eddie pretty much from the get-go. It was David Lee Roth's suggestion that they change the name from Mammoth to Van Halen. To Van Halen Brothers, he said that Van Halen was a better name, and that's what they did. They changed it to Van Halen. Now, even though they were clashing over styles, they eventually were able to meld it into something that was working for them, and they were all happy with. Michael Anthony, who was Van Halen's bass player, joined the band in 1974. They started playing parties and gigs around Pasadena, and then they would go to nightclubs like the Whiskey A Go-Go. They were having a hard time getting gigs at some of the local clubs because of Eddie. See, Eddie wanted his 
amp to sound a certain way. And the only way he could get it to sound that way was to crank it up completely. And the club said he was just too loud. So what he would do to get around this was he would face the amp towards the wall and he'd put stuff over it to muffle it, you know, cushions or coats and blankets, stuff like that. So it would deaden some of the sound, but it was still pushing out the sound that he wanted from the amp. He would do this for quite a while until he finally used a variac, which is a, it's kind of a dial that, that allowed him to vary the voltage of the amp. So he could crank the amp up to get the sound, but he dialed back the voltage so it wasn't as loud. And this allowed him to get the sound he wanted without blowing everybody's ears out. So this worked and they started getting gigs. Eddie is best known for his style of playing with the tapping. Eddie didn't invent this. This had been done a lot previous. Several guitar players have used this throughout the years. But he didn't really know that. And the way that he started doing it, it was unique to himself. And he was creating his own style in a way that no one had done it before. So it wasn't long before he was getting a name for himself because of this. The other musicians would hear about it and people were coming to check him out because they wanted to see what he was doing. David Lee Roth and Alex realized what was going on and told him, hey, you need to hide some of this stuff from people. So they would have Eddie turn his back to the audience and do some of his tricks so they couldn't see what he was doing. Nobody could copy him. Another thing little side note is that everybody knows his Frankenstein guitar. Well, that Frankenstein guitar has a dummy pickup in the, the neck pickup position. It's not wired. It looks like it is, but it's not wired to anything. He did that on purpose because he was trying to throw people off. So they couldn't figure out how he was getting the sounds he was getting. Now, Gene Simmons of kiss saw them playing at the Starwood in California, uh, 1976 when they were opening for UFO. And he says he was backstage by the third song. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. He thought they were awesome. And so he convinced them to let him record a demo and shop them. But nothing ever came of it. And in fact, Paul Stanley pushed him to let them go because Paul says he was trying to protect Kiss. Obviously, he saw what Van Halen could do and or the potential they had and didn't want to share the limelight a little bit of competition you know how that is anyway so gene cut them loose and they were soon found by warner brothers and they were signed with them later that year i don't know if gene still kicks himself for that but yeah i think you missed out so they all recorded their first album just called van halen and it was released in 1978 and it reached number 19 on the billboard charts it stayed on the charts for three years and eventually sold more than 10 million records just in the U.S. This album inc includes thing that Eddie's best known for, Eruption. That particular instrumental shows off his technical abilities and, and was so new at the time, it just caught everybody off guard. Now, side note on this, Eruption just developed out of something that Eddie and Alex would do for warm-ups before a gig. And it just eventually evolved into what it became. 30 years later, it was voted by readers of Guitar World magazine as being the best guitar solo ever. So it's pretty amazing what can come from just thinking around, isn't it?
Now, another side note, according to Gene Simmons, at one point, Eddie wanted to leave Van Halen and replace Ace Freely. So this would have been uh, 79, 80, because that's about the time when Ace was leaving the band. Eh, a little bit later, but they were having problems at that time. And Gene says he talked him out of it. Now, both Eddie and Paul Stanley, they both say that, nah, they don't remember any of that. So it could be just be Gene talking out his butt, or it could have actually happened. Who knows? One more side note. When Van Halen came out, initially, everybody thought David Lee Roth was Van Halen. They thought it was his name. You know, there was Van Morrison at the time and, and things like that. So they just kind of thought that was his name. Well, it turned out everybody figured out that that wasn't the case as soon as they heard Eddie's playing. It's kind of crazy, though. Now, Eddie never stopped practicing or writing music. He was always trying to come up with something different. And while he was on the road for the first album tour, he came up with an alternative way of doing the tapping. And what he would do is he'd do things like make a chord and then he would tap 12 frets above it for each one of the notes. And that would give it a, what's called a false harmonic. So it was a, a really cool thing that he came up with. Again, he didn't invent this. Jazz musicians have been doing this for a long time. It's just the way he's doing it was different. Now you can best hear this on songs like women in love or the, the acoustic song Spanish Fly, or Dance the Night Away. All these songs are included on the Van Halen 2 album, which was released in 1979. Van Halen toured almost constantly during this time, and they had played 132 live gigs by 1980. And they just kept pushing out songs and, and records. It's pretty amazing. Women and Children First came out in 1980, and it featured the song And the Cradle Will Rock, which was the first time they had included any keyboards. It's very subtle, but it's there. And Eddie was starting to branch out and get a little more innovative and not being held back just to play guitar, as if that's holding him back. The album's got some great songs on it. One of my favorites is Take Your Whiskey Home. It demonstrates his versatility as a guitar player. It's very bluesy, a little bit jazzy, a little bit funky, and then it goes right into heavy rock pretty cool song. The band had become one of the most successful bands in the entire world at this time, and Eddie and Alex bought their father a boat. Now, this was a point where Jan could officially retire. Jan had unfortunately had an accident where he had lost one of his fingers in 1972, and that's one of the worst things that can happen to a musician. So it led him to no longer play the clarinet. It was around this time when Eddie met actress Valerie Bertinelli at one of the concerts um, in Shreveport, Louisiana. They dated for about eight months and they got married. Now, while his personal life was going really well, he was frustrated because he felt he was unable to express himself fully on the previous albums. He and David Lee Roth had been you know, bickering over songs and the direction of the stuff back and forth. And that's been a frustration for Eddie. Now, David Lee Roth also was reported not to be happy about Eddie's relationship. It seems that he didn't think Eddie would be the one that would marry the actress and be running around with the A-listers. A little bit of jealousy. 
While Eddie and Valerie were everyone's perfect couple, they were not without their own struggles. When everything was good, everything was really good. But Eddie struggled with alcoholism and with substance abuse, something he inherited from his father. And his wild ways were influencing Valerie. She drank as much as he did, and when she joined him on the road, he reportedly would have her sleep in an adjoining room so he wouldn't wake her while he was playing guitar and writing music. He would sit and drink and play guitar. Valerie would try to keep up, even using cocaine along with Eddie, and she would tell people that she was doing it because Eddie liked her skinny. Soon, she was overdoing it, and Eddie even noticed, and so he begged her to stop snorting and start eating because she wasn't eating, and all she was doing was drinking and drugs. And so Eddie took her, she says he took her and had a chili cheese dog and some fries. And she says he helped save her from a serious eating disorder. So in 1981, they released Fair Warning with the songs Mean Street and Unchained. Now out of frustration, Eddie took creative control and would sneak into the studio and do the guitar parts over again the way he wanted to do them. He was experimenting with new sounds and techniques, and he was afraid the rest of the band uh, wouldn't receive him well. There were also more keys on this album, including a song called Sunday in the Park, which was pretty much all keys and a little bit of crazy guitar. This album may have had less of a commercial success if you consider 2.8 million copies a, a failure, but guitarists loved it. So it did go over really well, even though it wasn't getting a lot of airplay. After this, Eddie stepped back and let a little bit of control of the reins go. And they came back in 1982 and released Diver Down, which was an album that was rushed to release because the label wanted an album out, which followed the same format that was selling all the albums before. And so they pushed him to do it really quick. This is Eddie's least favorite album, there are a lot of cover songs on it, which he hated doing, and he criticized the album quite a bit. Eddie played a lot more keys on this album, like the instrumental Intruder and the cover Dancing in the Streets, which Ted Templeton had him do an original version of it, and that's where that came from. Eddie didn't like that either. It also includes one of my favorite songs, Little Guitars. Now, uh, Eddie recorded this on a three-quarter, which is a smaller guitar, um, and it's a, it's a Gibson Les Paul mini guitar, essentially. That's what he did the song on. It also includes a song called Big Bad Bill is Sweet William Now, which features Jan Van Halen on clarinet. Unfortunately, this would have been the first and last time that Jan would have gotten to play with his sons on any recording. He died of alcoholism in 1986. In 1983, Eddie constructed a state-of-the-art studio not far from his home, and he called it 5150. Now, 5150, if you don't know, is the call sign for the police for a mentally disturbed person. This gave Eddie more control over the recording process and the writing process, which did not sit well with David Lee Roth. By Eddie having the studio, he essentially ended the power struggle that had been going on for so many years between him and David Lee Roth because he could, he could just control stuff without his input. The final album with David Lee Roth was 1984, and it was one of their most successful albums ever. It sold 11 million copies in the U.S., 
The album reached number two when it was released, and it was number two on the Billboard charts for five weeks. This album includes song Hot for Teacher, Panama, and a lot more keys on songs like I'll Wait. All their songs were top 20s, and their only number one that they ever had was Jump. And Eddie had written this years before, and David Lee Roth had turned it down. It was also nominated for a Grammy. This album showed Eddie's increased experimentation with the guitar and coming up with new sounds and new ways to do things. There's some really cool stuff on this album. Side note, there's also a song on this album called Girls Gone Bad. Now, Eddie wrote that in a hotel room with Valerie Bertinelli, and he had put himself in the closet while she's sleeping. Well, he recorded himself playing guitar because he didn't want to wake her up. Around this time, Eddie had been asked to play the lead for a Michael Jackson song, Beat It. Now, he listened to the song, and he asked if he could make some changes. So he rearranged the, the lead section to what he wanted it to be, and then he recorded two different leads. Now, about the time he was finishing that second lead, Michael Jackson walked in, and Eddie really wasn't sure how he was going to take it. He, he understands the, the thought process of an artist, and he wasn't sure how Michael would take him changing his song. So Eddie explained to Michael what he did and why he did it, and then Michael gave it a listen. Michael turned around and looked at Eddie and he thanked him for what he did in making the song that much better. This thrilled Eddie so much that he told him uh, he wouldn't take any money for it. And so he did not get paid for that performance. In hindsight, if he cared, I mean, he made plenty of money, but he did miss out a lot of residuals off that. Now that album, Thriller, hit number one in the charts and it kept Van Halen out of number one. So it's kind of ironic that something that Eddie played on prevented his own band's album hitting number one. Van Halen was at the top of their game, headlining festivals all over the world and playing to hundreds of thousands of people. And it just wasn't pretty behind the scenes. Everything looked nice, but behind the scenes, things weren't nice. By this time, Valerie had stopped using cocaine and... Eddie, though, was still partying. He had a habit of drinking and using to do long writing sessions. He claimed that it helped with the creative process. But she was recognizing that it was having an effect on their marriage. And she said, other than that, there were a lot of other things going on that were hurting them as a couple. Eddie and David Lee Roth were fighting almost constantly. And Eddie's drinking and drug use was not helping anything. Early 1985, David Roth released his first solo album, Crazy in the Heat, while he was still in the band. So now when he left, there's some contention over when it actually was. There's some that say it was April 1st as a kind of a dig. Others say it wasn't until August of 1985. It didn't matter. He secretly had been putting together a band for his solo project, including a guitar virtuoso, Steve Vai. And when he announced he was leaving, he took 60 Van Halen employees with him. And this did not sit well with Eddie. In September of 1985, Sammy Hagar was playing at the first Farm Aid concert in Champaign, Illinois. And he was three songs into his set 
when Eddie Van Halen walked out on stage. They started doing rock and roll by Led Zeppelin, and this marked the first time that Eddie and Sammy had ever played together. Now, they had met once before in the late 70s, and Eddie told Sammy how how much he admired and loved his work with Montrose. After their performance, Sammy announced to the crowd that he was joining Van Halen. So how exactly did Sammy join Van Halen? Well, he and Eddie shared an auto mechanic named Claudio Zampoli. And one day, Eddie was telling Claudio that David left and they hadn't made it public yet. And Eddie was looking around the garage and he saw this black Ferrari 512 sitting over there. And he was like, wow, this is a nice car. Who does that belong to? And Claudio said, that's Sammy Hagar's. You should call him. Get him in your band. So Eddie did. And with that, the greatest band in the world got new life. All because of an auto mechanic. I wonder if they pay him royalties. Anyway, ironically, Sammy's wife really hoped that Eddie wouldn't call because she hated Van Halen. But Sammy was sure they would. They needed a singer and only a few singers would really fit what they were doing. And he knew he was one of them. Sure enough, Eddie called. Their first album, 5150, was produced without the help of longtime producer Ted Templeton, whom left to go with David Lee Roth. I guess David got him in the breakup. Now, Eddie and the band viewed that as the ultimate betrayal. Sammy came in, and he loved working with Sammy because Sammy could do whatever Eddie threw at him, vocally and, and whatever. And this really opened up a whole new area for Eddie that he couldn't touch with David. And he really enjoyed this because now he wasn't held back. He could be as innovative and creative as he wanted to be. He pushed Sammy to exceed his own abilities. And Sammy did the same to Eddie, making him break out of that guitar hero genre and being able to branch out and do a bunch of different things. They brought out the best in each other in, in new ways, and everyone involved with the band at this point felt the magic. And Eddie's popularity was growing. So to finish the album, Sammy insisted they bring in a professional producer, and he suggested Mick Jones. Now, Mick Jones was the guitar player and producer for uh, Foreigner, and he was able to do some fantastic stuff with their music. So they brought Mick in. He heard what was going on. He thought it was great. He said it sounded like he listened to Get Up, which is on the album. And he said it sounded like a bunch of guys banging against the wall. He loved it. So Mick was able to push Sammy to get even better vocals out of him, making him get to heights in his, in his vocal range that he hadn't reached before. And he also recognized that Eddie was a type of musician that just kind of let him have free reign and he would back off and let Eddie do his thing. And that's where all this wonderful music came from. Mick said that Eddie was the first guitar player since Jimi Hendrix that he had worked with, that he felt that he was getting touched from something above. Now, all this wonderful stuff's going on. It's not all peaches and cream. The engineer who recorded the, the music, Don Landy, he thought he would produce it, and he was pretty bent out of shape when they brought in Mick. And it got to a point where he pretty much flipped out. He locked himself in the studio, had all the tapes, said he was going to burn them, and that was going to be it. 
they talked him down, they worked with him, and they finally got him to open the door. He didn't damage anything, and they didn't cut him loose. They finished the album with him, and, and they put out a great record. 5150 is an awesome record. Early March 1986, they released the first single, Why Can't This Be Love? And it quickly rose to number two on the charts. March 24th of that same year, they released 5150, the album, and it went platinum. That's a million units sold, million records sold in a week. And that was the fastest million selling record in Warner Brothers history. Pretty amazing. A few weeks later, they were in a gig in Atlanta, Georgia, and they were told that their album hit number one. They were on a high and they parted like they were rock stars because they were. Now, in 86, as I mentioned, Eddie lost his father to alcoholism. Undoubtedly, this had a toll on him as he was dealing with his own addictions. The band continued recording and touring and kept their success going. They released OU812 and Four Unlawful Carnal Knowledge and the album Balance. All of them hit number one on the charts. However, while this was going on, tensions were rising in the band and there were a lot of arguments over creative differences and about the substance abuse. Eddie's addictions were still in full force and they were impacting the band and his home life. In January 1990, Eddie entered rehab, but it didn't take. He tried to hide his using um, from Valerie, whereas he would go to his neighbors. His neighbor at that time was Stephen Piercy, the lead singer from Rat. And he would ask him if he could hide alcohol in the bushes so he could come over and get some without Valerie knowing about it. In March of 1991, Wolfgang was born. And Eddie, at the time, was having the 5150 studio remodeled as well as he started working on designing guitars and amps. So he was focusing on some other things and trying to step back from the drinking and the, and the substance abuse, but things were still rocky with him and Valerie through the nineties, Eddie and Valerie, their marriage slowly fell apart. At one point, Eddie drunk showed up at Sammy's house at two 30 in the morning, demanding that he wrote a song with him and eventually explaining that Valerie had thrown him out for the night. On top of that tensions between Sammy and Eddie were growing to a head in 94, Eddie in a fit of frustration cut off all his hair and he told the media that he did it on a bet. He ended up liking it shorter. Now later that year, he sponsored a charity golf tournament and a concert, and that was the only performance of Van Halen in that year. In 1995, Eddie, in an attempt to mend things with his family, took steps to get clean and sober. He had stopped drinking, and he realized how much pain he was in. He had several health scares during this time, including hip replacement and his first bout with tongue cancer. Tensions were high with Sammy, and on Father's Day in 1996, Sammy left the band. There are conflicting stories about how Sammy left the band. Um, Sammy says he was fired. Eddie says he quit. There were stories that there were creative differences over the song Humans Being that was included in the movie soundtrack for, for Twister. They had really reached a point where they just couldn't see eye to eye anymore. There's also stories that Eddie's newfound sobriety played a role in this. Sammy wasn't 
sober. Sammy was still drinking and smoking pot and everything, and he was doing this around Eddie. And the stories are that Eddie asked Sammy to stop. Sammy said, no, I don't have a problem. You do. I shouldn't have to stop. And that caused uh, a lot of the conflict that they were experiencing. Now, as someone who's had some experience with addiction, I can tell you that an addict who's in a situation surrounded with people who will not stop or support their their sobriety they're doomed to fail and that's probably what was going on eddie was struggling with trying not to fall back into his old habits but it's right there in front of him it's really hard to say no unfortunately this was the end of an era of, of the van halen we've gone through a loss of david lee roth we lo- go through a loss of sammy hagar in 96, they released the best of volume one. And this had new songs on it, sung by David Lee Roth. Now, David Lee Roth had announced with the band that he was now back in the band and they were going to be doing tours and everything, but this was pretty premature. I think it probably is one of those situations. If you've ever been in a situation where you date someone and they have things that annoy you, um, rub you the wrong way. So you break up with them. And then you see him a little while later and you go, wow, why did I ever break up with them? And then you start dating him again. And it's like almost instantaneous. You realize, ah, yeah, I remember why. I think that happened here. Next, they had picked up Gary Sharon to come in and, and sing lead. Gary Sharon was lead singer for Extreme. He and Eddie hit it right off. Eddie spoke of him as his musical soulmate. And they worked really well together. They wrote some really great songs that are on that album, Van Halen 3. And it also has the distinction of having the only song that Eddie ever sang lead on, which wouldn't have happened if Gary hadn't pushed him to do it. Now, despite all this, the album failed to do well commercially. And they started doing a follow-up album, which kept getting rejected by the label. And Gary got frustrated and amicably he left the band. So now Van Halen went on hiatus for a while, and during this time, Eddie was still trying to work on his personal life. Around 2001, Valerie found cocaine that Eddie had in his possession. This was it. She'd had enough. She couldn't deal with the substance abuse anymore. And even though she loved him to death, she couldn't go on like this. So she left him, and they finalized their divorce five years later. Eddie didn't take the split well at all it it really broke him down sammy recalls visiting him after the split and he said eddie was just a mess there were blankets over the windows there were bottles and cans all over the house and he noted that eddie was missing some teeth Eddie just wasn't dealing well and he had fallen back into his addictions fully in 2004 sammy and eddie decided to let bygones be bygones and sammy rejoined the band for 2004 tour this was ill-fated there was high attendance they made a lot of money but the performance were not as good as they had been in the past Eddie dealing with his alcoholism he was sloppy he was not at the top of his game and the years of drinking had really taken a toll on him um, he just didn't have the ability to play drunk anymore and that happens now tensions were high right from the start between him and Sammy and it just never got better. Sammy couldn't deal with Eddie's addictions and Eddie couldn't deal with Sammy pushing his tequila brand. They had talked about it before 
and they had told the brand Halo brothers had told Sammy he couldn't sell his his alcohol his Cabo Wabo alcohol and the concerts well Sammy did an end run around him went to the arenas and got contracts with them to sell his alcohol in the arenas Sammy also went and got himself a Cabo Wabo tattoo on his arm and wore short sleeves so this coupled with uh, Sammy's close relationship to Michael Anthony was just pushing Eddie over the edge and stuff with Michael Anthony wasn't great either they weren't going to take him on tour when he when they brought him back they told him that he had to sign over his rights to the Van Halen name and he was going to be a higher gun and he took a big pay cut now Michael said the only reason that he did it was because he felt that was going to be the last time the band ever played together turned out he was right now by the end of that tour Eddie and Alex were staying in different hotels, different security, different planes, different everything. And Michael and Sammy were doing the same thing on the other side. The complete rift. They weren't even talking to each other at that point. So this pretty much signaled there wasn't going to be reconciliation between them. Van Halen went back on hiatus. This time it was just Alex and Eddie. Now I will say that I saw the reunion tour with Sammy and it was... Not the best one. I've seen Van Halen numerous times. This was not the best performance. It was sad to see my hero in such dire straits. It was it was a it was a good concert. I'm not gonna take that away. It was a good concert. It just wasn't wasn't his best work. In two thousand seven, the entire band, David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony, Alex Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, and Sammy Hagar were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, although Eddie wasn't there. He was in rehab at that time. So at this point, Eddie started trying to get his life together, and he was reportedly clean and sober in 2008. There were rumors going around that David Lee Roth was going to come back for a reunion, but this had been going on for quite a while. Eddie also brought Wolfgang in to replace Michael Anthony on bass. David Lee Roth did rejoin the band and they did do some tour dates. However, Eddie had to have some medical procedures done. So there were some tour dates that were canceled. They ended up wrapping up the tour in July of 2008. Now, during this time, he and Valerie had remained close friends and they both attended each other's weddings when they got married again. Eddie married Janie Lewiswinski. She's a Hollywood stunt woman in 2009. He also started becoming a very big part of his son Wolfgang's life. This was this is what he wanted to do, and he had cleaned himself up. He was now clean and sober, and he was trying to participate in his son's life, and he got to be very close with him. They once again re reunited with David Lee Roth in 2011, and they recorded their final album, A Different Kind of Truth, with David Lee Roth singing and Wolfgang on bass. It debuted at number two on the Billboard charts, and a clean and sober Eddie went on tour until he had a severe bout of diverticulitis. After his recovery, they did a few dates in Japan, Australia, and the U.S., now, I did see their final tour in 2015, and it was absolutely awesome to see Eddie smiling and sober. He was playing better than ever. He didn't miss anything. And while he couldn't do his trademark split jumps anymore, it was a joy to watch him. I enjoyed that concert, and I'm so grateful I got to see him one last time before he passed. It was reported that Eddie was trying to 
take steps to put Van Halen back together, the original lineup, including Michael Anthony. He told Nuno Benecourt, who was the guitar player for Extreme, as well as Gary Sharon, that they were going to go out the same way they came in together. And it was all Wolfgang's idea. Wolfgang had reached out to Michael Anthony and was doing the communication that way, trying to build it up back up. Unfortunately, it never happened. Eddie and Michael never talked again after the split. Valerie said Eddie came to visit her Thanksgiving of 2019 and he gave her a gold bar he bought in Germany. He told her he was sorry that he knew he had messed up in their marriage and he wanted her forgiveness. And she told him that she had messed up and she wanted his forgiveness. They forgave each other. They were still married to separate people, but they made up and got past the troubles that they had both endured in their marriage. During this time, Sammy and Agar hadn't spoke to Eddie for a while. Sammy started sending him messages on his birthday or at, you know, New Year's or whatever, wishing him a happy birthday, wishing him happy New Year's, that kind of stuff. He did it several years, and then he finally got a short message back from Eddie. What happened was, is Sammy had reconnected with Alex, and but he was afraid to call Eddie because he was afraid that he would tell him off. And the comedian George Lopez knew them both. And George told him, dude, Eddie loves you, man. Give him a call. He wants you. I talked to him. He loves you. He wants to talk to you. So Sammy sucked it up and gave Eddie a call. And first thing Eddie said was, what took you so long? You know, Sammy's like, well, I was talking to Alex and I was talking to so-and-so. And, and Eddie said, but you didn't call me. And Sammy says, well, I'm calling you now. And they both laughed about it. And they were able to start their conversations and their friendship back up. So their conversations continued for about four or five months until Eddie just stopped responding. And Sammy thought he was gaslighting him. So he kept trying and Eddie wasn't responding. And then finally he got a hold of Eddie and he goes, what, what gives man? Why'd you stop responding? And he said, I'm sorry, man, I've been in the hospital. And Sammy was knocked down by that. He didn't know. Unfortunately, that was the last time they'd ever speak. Now, Eddie passed away on October 6th in 2020 at the age of 65 years old. He had cancer. He was in the hospital for several weeks and Wolfgang, Valerie, his wife, Janie, and his brother, Alex, were all with him every single day while he was in the hospital. Valerie says the last words that Eddie spoke was, I love you to her and to Wolfgang. And the last things they told him before he took his final breath was, I love you. We lost a great artist that day. We were devastated when we heard the news. I know I was, I know a lot of people were, and it was such a hard time for us because we were never going to hear any more of this wonderful new music out of this man's brain. He's an amazing person, and we're not going to ever hear anything again. But being the great artist and innovator he was, his music's going to live on, and it's going to continue to inspire people. Now, here's some accomplishments you might not have known Eddie had. You know he had his main guitar called the Frankenstein it was pieced together from a bunch of different guitars. And as I mentioned earlier, he had a fake pickup in it and looked like fake wiring just to throw people off. He didn't want people to know what he did. In 1979, Eddie was voted best 
Rock Guitarist by Guitar Player magazine. In 87, Eddie was granted his first patent. That's right, this man had patents. He was inspired by his father's ability to get past physical setbacks, like the loss of his finger. And his father also invented a Teflon dental bridge that allowed him to continue to play the clarinet when he lost his teeth. Eddie found inspiration in this. His first patent was for a flip-out support device that would allow him to attach it to the back of the guitar or a stringed instrument and lay it flat where they could play similar to what you would do in a piano. He held two other patents, one for a guitar peg that would help the strings maintain their tension and another for ornamental design of a humbucker pickup. He also had several items that were released like uh, volume knobs and stuff like that that were built to his specifications. He enjoyed building and designing guitars. In 1981, he was endorsed by Kramer and they built his first guitar that he was endorsed by called the 5150. This replaced the Frankenstein is his main guitar. In 1991, he changed to Ernie Ball, who created the EVH 5150, but he only stayed with them for a short time because they were unable to keep up the demands of the market for that particular guitar. So in 1995, he switched over to PV, who created an EVH guitar. And in 2001, he finally hooked up with Fender and he teamed up with Fender master builder Chip Ellis and they designed the EVH Wolfgang guitar. It was released in 2009 and the Wolfgang is still sold today. Wolfgang and Matt Bruck are the leaders of the company. Eddie did music collaborations with several musicians like Gene Simmons of Kiss, singer-songwriter Nicolette Larson, Brian May of Queen, LL Cool J, and many others. He also appeared on a couple TV shows, one with his wife at the time, uh, and also on Two and a Half Men, and he did some other things like that. He was a guest on uh, Saturday Night Live, Dave Letterman, those kind of things where he was just playing music. And he also was in a music video with Frank Sinatra. In February 2015, Eddie spoke at the Smithsonian in part of their What It Means to Be an American series. He spoke on his journey as a Dutch immigrant to becoming a U.S. naturalized citizen and his role in creating one of the biggest rock bands that ever existed. He also talked about how he changed how guitars are played and designed. The guy's been all over the place. He, he did a lot. Eddie also befriended Jason Becker. Jason Becker is probably not uh, a name that you may recognize, but he was an amazing guitar player before he was stricken with ALS. Eddie was one of his influences, and Eddie went to his house, hung out with him for the whole day. They talked music. Eddie played. They just hung out. Jason has to communicate through a system that his dad designed where he, he uses his eyes because he can't speak. He can't do anything. He looks at, at letters and words with his eyes, and that's how he speaks. Uh, and people interpret what he's saying. That was the only day that they ever hung out together, but Eddie would email him or call him on the phone. They would talk all the time, and he became very close. Another thing Eddie did was he had made friends with Dimebag Daryl Abbott, the lead guitar player for Pantera. And 
he was one of the inspirations. He was the reason Dimebag picked the guitar up in the first place. And he had gotten to meet him and was ecstatic about it. They got to be friends, but they only knew each other for a short time before Daryl was shot by a fan during a concert, tragically died. So they were trying to buy a striped guitar from Eddie out of his collection. They offered him like $30,000 and they said, no, 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 I'll make you one. Well, after Daryl's death, they were trying to figure something out and they had asked Eddie for the black and yellow striped guitar that he had, you know, a copy of that to be buried with Daryl. Eddie showed up at the, at the funeral and put the yellow and black stripe that he had, that it was his, he had played. It was on the back of the Van Halen two album, gave it to them to be buried with Daryl. He said an original deserves an original. Now Eddie couldn't look at Daryl in the coffin because he wanted to remember him as he remembered alive. But this is the type of stuff that Eddie did. He was a very generous and very giving person. Now, one of his mantras was always like, there's no rules, just do your thing and let it happen. And that was how he, how he tried to live his life. Eddie Van Halen was an amazingly talented musician, well beyond just a good guitar player. He wasn't just a shredder. He was an innovator. He inspired so many people and the world is better because of the music he created. We have so many wonderful other musicians that are creating stuff because they were inspired by Eddie. Not only the great music that Eddie gave us with David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar or Gary Sharon or the things that he did with other musicians. He's inspired so many people to create music because of him. And this is, this is one of the greatest things ever. His legacy will live on. His son is now playing wonderful music, all inspired by his dad. And I don't think there's a better tribute that can be done to a great musician other than people's continuing to create and give him credit for the inspiration that he provided to them. I miss Eddie every day. I didn't know him. I wish I did. But I do miss him because you remember that your hero's not there anymore. And when you lose heroes, it's a little hard to take. But his music's there, and I can go back to the music, and every time I listen to it, I can imagine him playing that. I remember the concerts I went and saw, and that's some of the great stuff. Music's a healer, and it helps us cope with tragic events. It helps us cope with wonderful events. That's what music's for, and he gave us a lot of it. As long as we have Eddie's music, he's never really gone. All we have to do is turn it on, and he's in our ears. For the new music you should be listening to, I'm going to suggest checking out the newly released remastered songs for Van Halen. There's three of them they did this year, 2023, Crossing Over, It's About Time, and Humans Beings. I've never heard the Crossing Over song before. So it's kind of cool. It's very involved, but check it out. Any Van Halen fans got to listen to this stuff. And it's cool because if you haven't heard it before, it's like hearing brand new Van Halen. So check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks for hanging out with me. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. If you did, 
come back next time. Leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. And if there's somebody you'd like me to check out, let me know. I'll be happy to do one for you. So until next time, no matter what anybody tells you, Rock's not dead. Take care.